Greetings, outcast, free thinkers, narrative questioners, dot connectors, and genuinely open-minded and outright curious inhabitants of whatever realm we exist in at the moment. You are about to embark on another free first hour episode of The Notes. If you find yourself wanting to dig deeper and have the desire to join the conversation during our monthly Melt meetups, you might want to consider becoming a monthly subscriber. For as little as three lousy Babylon hokey pokey tokens per month, you can have access to full length, early and exclusive episodes. Just visit patreon.com slash the melt podcast or click the link in the episode notes to set the process in motion. It's simple, painless, and very well might make you feel tingly inside. So without further ado, please enjoy the show. This is Hunter Muse. And this is Chris Snipes. And you are listening to The Melt. have listened to The Melt for any length of time, then you know the value that we place on first-hand experience. Despite what is said about subjectivity and the potential selectivity of recall, some things in this realm are only going to be experienced firsthand, with no chance of premeditated repetition or opportunity to study or quantify it. And some experiences are just meant for the individual or particular group. We believe that these should not be discounted on those characteristics alone. A huge problem with consensus reality is that many people tend to rely on others' experiences to inform how they feel about something that they themselves haven't experienced. And if that wasn't already one step removed from the subject matter, they are usually hearing it from someone that they don't even know much less know the motivations of or the greater context of this particular person or group's perception. We live in a media-saturated world where much of what people take in is passive and the content is highly manipulated to achieve a particular result. With all this in mind, we relish the opportunity to be able to talk with people in real time who are speaking from the seat of their experiences, where we have the opportunity to dig deeper into their greater context and the context of the experiences themselves. Today's guest, Nish, has had an extremely interesting life, starting off with her experiences with what can only be called a program or project of some sort meant to observe and possibly manipulate the inherent powers that certain children display. 
I start off the conversation by asking Nish what it was that she experienced and what role did it play in setting her on her life's trajectory. Oh, that's an interesting question as far as how comprehensive everything is. If you've gone through this, then you will know there are just layers of rising into the presence of things you have uh, been part of that may not be accessible to your modern memory. And so I just thought, like everyone in their childhood, that the world is as it is for you in your world, right? You don't realize there's anything else till you start moving into the outer rings of the collective and deeper into self-searching at the same time because they kind of go hand in hand. And so as I started to get out into the world, which was very young, I started running away at the age of six. Mm. And so I realized quite early that the things I held as my normal and the natural ways around my particular family and outer influence of friends and people in my life vis-a-vis the parental figures, the adults, school, all that were vastly different from a majority of people around me. Mm. However, that said, I have always found that we find our we find ourselves in others and so therefore we find the others and this was comforting when I went back to do some digging and learn about the process that brought me into uh, questioning the narrative, questioning my narrative. So like so many stories that we hear, it's almost ubiquitous. I was plucked out of my normal schooling for certain reasons. Now, I was one of the few that was held back and not one that was going ahead. They held me back to keep me in the program. So, but I was also that kid that was finished with my assignment and very many times a lot of big trouble with like an English test or something in about 10 minutes with my paper turned over and all this. I was extremely smart. I could write and walk and talk properly by the time I made it into preschool kindergarten, I guess some people call that. Uh, It was a a motive of my mother with my brother and my cousin I and I, my cousin's long been dead. He was also one like me. And so I came into school exceptionally smart, smarter than everyone around me, except for one friend. And we became close friends And uh, until really till the day he died, he ended up in New York being a a really well-known dancer, full scholarship with Juilliard. Mm -hmm. When he died, you know, the New York Times had a spin on him. Stan is his name. And and so we ended up in those kind of special classes. But he was one that went ahead a year. And I got pulled back a year, which actually put us in the same class. Mm. So in the process that happened when I was going to elementary school was they put me in there and there were several 
kids. It was like a normal classroom and it had both the advanced and the ones that needed help. And I was in there for the ones that needed help, despite being able to finish all my stuff at record time, even above and beyond Stanley's. And so it, it, to me at that time, it seemed unfair. I I felt like I was being picked on Mm. And I've never been a victim. So I started to question. And of course, I got no answers through that. However, what happened further was we all ended up in different modes of, I guess, testing. And this is all the usual stuff people understand. The litmus test, the, all the cards, the just all of it. Yeah. And... um Ultimately, it came down to Stanley and I, and then Stanley was out. And the when I was six, so there's, oh my God, there's so much backstory here. Go for uh, it. Well, I'm going to leave out a lot because I, I just don't like to linger. I feel like I sure. should have told this story so much. I, I know, I'm but sorry. Anyway, um, what happened was I ended up being taken out during art. I wasn't allowed to do art classes. So they would take me out during art classes. Now I've always been a very creative person since I was little, I was making dolls. I was anything I could from nothing because I had a terrible, you know, you got to understand a child's running away, trying to run away at the age of six. So I was having a bad experience and it, it, was circumambulating around the ways in which my abilities were expressing themselves, which was scaring people. And there's a whole thing there, which is very familiar, I think, to some people. So I started being taken off campus at during the art hour by a lady that I just found out is actually related to me and in my tree. And I literally just found that out a few months ago. I couldn't understand it. She was a Welsh lady and a very caring and very lovely. Absolutely. I really loved her. Of course, she's doing what she's supposed to do and creating fealty. She's creating connection and acceptance and all this because they were recognizing me as a problem child anyway. I always questioned authority, and Mm -hmm. that landed me in the principal's office often. Of course. Despite being extremely intelligent. So then I find myself off campus doing this stuff, the usual stuff, and I'm going to share this because it's something I hadn't shared until just recently. So just as a working psychic in the world, and this is what they used me for, by the way, Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't know. It was always tell us, you know, it it was set up in the way when I was going through union psychoanalysis. When I was going through analysis, I think that started when I was, I think the year after and ended when I was about 11. And so, and that's on the books. Mm -hmm. And so uh, what happened here is I would get a whole bunch of stuff to play with. So there could be, there's like a sandbox of stuff. There's a dollhouse with dolls. There's papers and there's colors and stuff. And you could express yourself any way you wanted, verbally or through any of these utensils. So anyone who's been through that analysis process will understand all that, especially as a child. And uh, I'm grateful to have gone, I've gone through it twice. One 
formal like that. I was just telling you one informal with a, a real union and uh, that was very helpful later on in my life. And so I would get, I would be presented with information and then I would just work it out and they would do what they wanted to do with it. And then I would be returned back to class. It was always just an hour. Mm -hmm. And so this experience that I'm going to tell now, which I only just told in a personal live stream at my speakeasy. So it's not actually out in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, It is privately, but it's not like out in the world. So I do a bunch of psychic work now. I've been doing seesaw sessions with uh, Jake Vanek. And I, uh, once in a while, am contracted to do some psychic work. I don't actually like doing it except for for myself Mm -hmm. at this point because it was... It, I just don't. Uh, and, and I find like reading tarot or astrology, people don't want to hear what you want to say anyway. And no matter how you can decode it, it's, yeah. it's part of our, you know, the, the way the psyche functions in this particular construct for most people. And so we were, and these were all kids I did not know. Now, one of my best friends that I've known for over 40 years now ends up we connected, I think, when I was 17, and we're still really great friends. In fact, JJ lives in his building in Chicago. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And, <laughs> yeah, it's a small world, and these all have receipts. This is one of the things I think that that is interesting with a lot of people don't have receipts, but I do. And so, anyway, he ended up being in these programs as well, and there are stories with him, but I'm not going to bring his name or him in because you know, he's out there working in the Hollywood industry. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're, I'm in this long hall. I'm in this space. This is a very familiar space. It's like a 1950s mid-century building. And the we're always entered through the same set of doors. There's a central hall. It looked a lot like my school, actually. And there's just like office, what I would call office rooms on either side of the hall the hall's really large and each office room has a window so you can see in or out from that space i don't know the number of windows i haven't really explored that in my memory i'm just going from my raw memory of this and so there would be something placed in the center of the hall where everyone could see. You could get up and walk around in the room and all this. And you had a pen and paper. There was whiteboard. Um, actually, I think it was chalkboard in there. And uh, it was you could write. I'm pretty sure it's chalkboard because it was dark. Uh, anyway, so you could write and you could color. But there wasn't like all the other stuff. There was like dolls and and. and all the other stuff that would come along with some of the stuff that became familiar for me in this process Mm -hmm. of getting information out. So we would all get to look at this object, whatever it was. So one week it could just be a vase, you know, another week it could be a black dot on the floor. Another week it could be a teddy bear, you know, it just fluctuated. Um, I remember one time there was like a, some sort of floating, almost like a glitter, a glitter light. I don't know. It was just floating stuff in liquid. It was very glittery. And, uh, and then we would just all folk. The thing is we did have to focus on it. And I remember we, the first time 
again, I'm not sure if my friend was in this, the one that JJ knows. Um, and I, we haven't talked a lot about some of this, but I remember that there was a kid that started to cry and freak out. And mm-hmm. here's what was happening. We're all focusing on this object. And what happens is you start to go into a sync, like when you're harmonizing and singing. And if you've ever sung and you've harmonized and there's a certain resonance that starts to happen, mm-hmm. it's very magical. People respond in an audience. You respond as a singer. It's it's something special and it's resonance. So this particular person started really freaking out. So we never saw that person again. Never made friends with these people. We're always separate. And uh, so the resonance I think now looking back, because we got no explanations of this, you know, we're just in there. Mm-hmm. You get your cookie and your milk. Okay. Yeah. And um, <laughs> so we're in there, we're focusing on these objects and we get to a resonance. And the way I understand that resonance now, besides harmonizing, is when I first started to dive into my tinnitus problems that have developed over the last several years, and I started to go and listen to different sounds people allegedly hear, and I stumbled upon termites, and that is the sound we made. And wow. so I wanted to put that out there because it's unbelievable to me. When I stumbled upon it, I'm like, that's the sound we made, all us little kids in there. And I don't know to this day if they were trying to get the sound, the resonance, or what we – so we would do that. We would get to that vibrational shaking point, which is also similar if you're an out-of-body person to when you're about ready to separate out of your flesh. There's a vibrational thing that happens and you pivot out. It's similar to that, but it's it still reminded me more of the termites. And then we would, of course, get our cookie and milk to ground us and uh, and then write down or whatever. Um, if you needed to talk to someone, my particular person was always there. So if I needed her, she was there. And then we would just get plopped back. So there's no like, I don't have, unless I've, covered these memories up. I don't have horror stories from this. In fact, I enjoyed all that immensely. It was time away from my hell. It was time where somehow I felt like I was valued and nothing scared me. You couldn't scare me. I had enough hell going on. Mm. There was no way to scare me. And I think this is why I became dangerous to some of the caretakers in my life. They, you know, you could beat me bloody and you wouldn't get a tear. Mm. And so, I mean, I had to work up to that, but trust me, I did get to that. Mm -hmm. And so these people were treating me with kindness and respect and seemed to value me. And that was everything to that little child. So that kind of stuff was what we were doing. And I've been doing this kind of stuff. So I brought Jake, my friend, who's a psychic, Jake Vanek, into doing some stuff. We would do seesaw sessions and that's what I'm literally calling them the same thing they were called then. This is the 1970s. And uh, I've been doing those at the speakeasy with the psychic Jake Vanek and we're having a a glorious time doing that. Of course, there's just tons of hits and everything. And then I'm going to start working on doing some of this frequency stuff I learned, but I still don't know what they did with 
that when we got to that point of energy. And so that's where I'm searching. I'm not very astute when it comes to knowing all things programs. I don't know that much really in the end. My studies or my searching has been involved or I guess the focus has been trying to understand my momo and her role in my life, trying to dig into memories that really stick and um, just a, I've only taken a couple formal neuroscience classes, but I'm knee deep in all that material. I love it, love mm-hmm. it, love it. And so I immerse myself in that stuff and uh, trying to understand the different processing of what a cover memory is, why do certain memories become shiny and stick with us, and trying to follow what I call preceding, and I mean S-E-E-D, that may have happened vis-a-vis my mother and also myself without, unbeknownst to me, you know, we do this, actually, I'm learning that we do this organically, we do it naturally it's almost an autonomic thing that happens when you are under stress mm-hmm. and when the psyche is being uh slivered into workable pieces from say an outside vector that is doing this intentionally we see this with like the mk people and mm-hmm. all that so i'm i'm Focusing on that. And currently, my biggest focus is remembering womb time, being in utero. Mm -hmm. And that has been very fruitful. So that's kind of my little foray into the programs. I don't know what you'd call that. I know uh, my good friend, James Bartley, and I have some. I love James. We're recording tomorrow. We do every few Every so often, we do them regularly, but we call them deep dives, or it's just a powerful mm-hmm. one hour. <laughs> yeah, he's coming on the melt, actually. <laughs> oh, he's fat. I love James. Yeah, yeah. And um, anyway, so it's just this kind of meandering into what were those experiences and trying to find similarities. I listen to, have listened to lots of people, not a huge amount, but enough to feel as if I've had a different experience than a lot of people that come forward with some of these experiences. And I'm not trying to value mine any differently. I'm just saying that I seem to have different experiences and I'm not sure why. This also goes with astral projection. I have never seen the silver cord, but you know where I have seen it? In utero. Mm. I see it as the umbilicus. And so I can tell you there's a connection there, but when I'm out of body, there's no silver cord. And Mm. so I've met like three people that have the same experience. So I am just on the track of learning my own stuff, trying to deeper or at a deeper level, understand the symbols I'm working with, because I think that that's a never ending journey. I think that the complex nature of symbols, the dynamic nature of symbols in the way they can shift and morph and change, and yet at the core, they are still the same thing. And this is where, of course, we can find our complexes. This is where we can find all kinds of little Easter eggs for ourselves in these journeys of self-discovery. 
And the programs have seemed, or at least that one, because I don't know that I was in anything else. I can only, only relate to that one where I was being pulled out of school. So anything else has had a a cover to it or a wipe. And there's plenty of questionable stuff in my life to suggest there is, but I can't hold on to it any of that with like solid receipts and solid intel or solid justification through a series of uh, what would seem synchronistic events or alignments or also having someone else that was in something with me validate it. And I'm kind of, I kind of walk that line. I'm a Nancy Drew, really. Mm. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So you said so much that really, really resonated with me and I feel so powerful. One question I have is, do you posit that it's possible that this was happening on a global scale and that uh, there was like a collective mesmerism that was happening and they were just kind of plucking children out of certain um, environments or certain situations who responded? Yes, I do. And see, this is another thing. And I think, Hunter, you were, you're studying psychology, correct? Yes. So I think you should, I'm deep, deep in psychology. And I think you should understand that whole idea real well, that when one starts to think it's just me, it, you're you're looking at a problem here. Mm-hmm. And I try my hardest to always stay clear of that. Now, it may, in fact, sometimes just be you. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to get to that, though, and you need to get to that in a solid, grounded, non, a neutral way. So with this stuff that you're asking, though, yes, I think this is across the whole realm. I think it was looking for, or is always, I don't think it was during my period, I think it's been this whole experience of what we've considered our collective reality Mm -hmm. is always looking for certain expressed characteristics from certain, um, I guess, people in the realm as they come through. And there are a lot of different ways things can play out. And like I said earlier, I am not a person that comes from a victim state. So I've had enough stuff in my life that I could certainly... cover your room in tears of victimhood. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I could drown you both. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But I have never, not once in my life, come from that state or the why me state. Mm -hmm. I don't know what that is. It's in my program. And um, like if I'm in Westworld, I'm Maeve. You know, like it's, (laughs) you know, there's no, there's no victimhood here. I always took everything as an experiential cue Mm -hmm. to figure out how I could get out everything to me in this experience that we are on is a puzzle. Everything leads to another state, another question, another realization where constantly in the process of rising into presence, or if we want to use the dream analogy, becoming lucid. And that is the key. That's a solid key as a door opener into the process of this experience. And so, yes, I think that part of everything we've seen in the last three years, which I try to tell everyone, uh, 
is a genetic raking that mm-hmm. they did. They literally did it in a literal way. What did they do? They they collected everyone's DNA. Mm-hmm. And then what did they come in? They have three magical doors, right? Three magical potions marked one, two, and three. And on based upon your genetics, that you can get genetic markers done real fast on just like a pregnancy test, you Mm -hmm. know, stuff can come back real fast if you've got it pinpointed and you know what you're looking for because those PCR tests were not what they were, what they were sold as. Mm -hmm. And you all know this. Mm -hmm. So that, that was what door you were going to go through. And uh, this opens up the field into a wider idea of the last three years, which is now the new time because the time before will never is never coming back. And so they are looking for a certain set of um, activated genetics. This is I'm speaking from my psychic self now. And as this has all come through, the receipts have all come in. So, mm-hmm. and again, that's part of the problem with this whole idea of, um, some of the way in which I perceive the realm is I get this information and anyone can get this information. I'm not special. Sure. It's, it's in the collective. Well, you just have to be able to see it or access it. Mm-hmm. And then I say it, I blurt it out, I put it in art and then I wait for the receipts. And at this point in my life, I don't even care if people want to call me a doom queen or whatever. <laughs> I just don't care. Bring it bra. And, um, <laughs> And so that's what I'm saying. We, it was genetically raked to get everyone in a good index and, uh, and then start moving forward from there. And we're in the process of a new phase actually right now. And so this was important. The work that people like I did and the ones before me, and I'm sure the ones, I don't know how far this goes back. I know that like my parents' generation, the boomers, they uh, they were, I think, considered wave one, right? Mm-hmm. The boomers were. And then Gen X was really targeted. Mm-hmm. And um, and so and now we have the whole new species on board. Right. But this is this is something that needed to happen. And it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out because they really only care about those that are expressing this certain genetic characteristic like if you're breeding a dog and you want a very specific breed well you know you get there but there's a lot of death and um there's a lot of really selective processing in the process of getting there and the dogs never have it good well speaking of the process of getting there and and sort of this narrowing down of characteristics going back to the program were there some sort was there some sort of data collection going on were there people taking notes around you asking questions after these sessions oh yeah like i said earlier my um i don't know what to call her and i don't want to she's passed now but mm-hmm. i just don't want to out her sure. um she she was always accessible so if If you need, like I said, I did not witness anything terrible. I did not. I can say that straight up. There, I did not witness anything terrible. Outside of that, the child that cried, but they didn't do anything. We just never saw that child again. I'm I'm assuming they just went back to their school life. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyway, so, yes, 
yes, there was, like I said, you would be writing on a paper or they would interact with you at any moment if you needed anything, like going to the bathroom, that was allowed. So just like any other kind of analytic process, there was an an after where you were being asked about what what were your perceptions? Did you see anything? But what I was saying earlier is I have a feeling they didn't care about any of that, that they only cared that we were getting in resonance with each other. Mm -hmm. And I think that the audience, and I call the audience the ones that were in behind the glass because it's a hallway. So I couldn't see the ones next to me. Mm -hmm. I could just see the ones across from me. Right. So you can't see everyone, but everyone could see the thing. Mm -hmm. And, um, and that everyone had a different vantage point, of course. And so I don't know how often they rotated it to get what they wanted. I was in that program a long time. They did a lot of different kinds of things. I can only give you that information so that's all I have, really. Sure. So once sometimes I would see stuff, sometimes I wouldn't. Sometimes it was... I remember there were times when the vibration felt like my chest was going to ex- like blow up. I remember it hurting sometimes. Wow. I I was thinking about my childhood and and kind of this transient way that I grew up living all over the United States and all over the world for, in certain periods. And at when I was 5, I went to a school in uh, Calgary, Canada, in Alberta. And the school was a Montessori. And they had a two-way glass in this mm. school where the parents could come and observe the students. And the my teacher called my mother and said, I need you to come to school to observe your daughter. And my mother said that the teacher gave out a piece of paper that had the assignment on it and that I stood up and I went to every single student in the class and I helped them do their paper and made sure that they actually completed the homework. And then I went, I, it was like a timed assignment that I ran back and this is, I was five. I ran back to my desk and I quickly did the assignment And the teacher said to my mother, she does this every day with every assignment (laughs) that she's given. Still to this day. (laughs) So there was She helps me with my assignments all the time. (laughs) So there there was this need and this desire to make certain that everyone had their work done and that, that it was done properly. So they assigned me students and I didn't know this. I was five. I had no idea what was happening. They assigned me students that had learning disabilities. Like there was a girl who was a mute who came to the school and they had her sit with me. And this is someone who had never spoken throughout her entire life. And within, you know, a short amount of time, she was interacting and engaging with me. So I think that there are children that have heightened abilities and certain frequencies that they operate uh, with and on that are highlighted and that are 
um, targeted or, or picked out of the group um, in these tests. And it sounds like you were one of these children that they just, uh, they recognize this um, other ability. Do you think that some of that comes from early childhood trauma? Yeah, I think all of my expressed abilities 100% come from trauma. Yeah, 100%. And my story is kind of a, you know, so like Annie is a hard luck, is a hard knock mm-hmm. story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was, there's a lot of early fuckery in my life, mm-hmm. a lot. Like uh, this whole, you know, I didn't even, you know, they all played off who my father was and mm-hmm. wasn't and all this, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And so it, there was just this, compounded trauma and all I really wanted was my mom and so through that and through lots of uh stuff I recognize now looking back that felt very uh I guess picked upon you know you get kittens and they take them away mm-hmm. you get Christmas presents and they take them away mm-hmm. You don't get to see your mother, you know, for months. And then, you know, just like all this stuff. And it ended, well, it started the year I started, the year I ran away was the first year I bilocated from one place to another. And that kind of created this mythology of me with um, my cousin's dad, who wouldn't be around me, who's this big, bad Vietnam vet back. And, um, you know, he was terrified of this, this little tiny kid. (laughs) He was terrified of me and that I didn't understand why you've got to understand. I didn't understand why. All I know is I would be thrown. I remember one around Christmas time going over there and all this is happening in the Midwest, mind you. So going over there and uh, to my cousin's house, my mother's sister's house and they were a tight my mother and her sister and my grandmother very tight 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 were very tight and uh and especially the line of my great grandmother to my grandmother to my mother to I are very tight we were always like what they called the black sheeps mm-hmm. and uh so we're over there for christmas he comes in, my cousin's father, my cousin was a couple years older than me. And my, and my aunt worked for IBM at the time. I remember this, what she did for a long time, for years, she became very prominent. And, uh, and so something, some kerfuffle, I don't remember the full thing, but he comes back. She's she came back from work. I, I'm over there with my grandmother and my mom, and all this. He comes. She comes back from work. Gets out of her very spiffy work clothes. She was a total model type, just incredibly mm-hmm. gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And, well, she was a model at one point, and she gets comfortable. Everyone's fine. It's a really great occasion. And that's why I'm putting this. It was, everyone was having fun. And then he comes back from wherever he had been and I'm there and he's just like off the handle with it, off the handle. So immediately the scene changes and it goes very dark. I am scuttled into my cousin's bedroom and we're locked in. 
And all of a sudden we just hear all this crazy fight. He just went ballistic Mm. and it was all about me. And, you know, he's like, that child's got Manson eyes and blah, 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 blah. And it created this deep sadness in me. Mm. I'll never forget it. I mean, it's just such a clear thing. And I'm in there playing with my cousin and my brother's just a tiny little baby. I think my mother had him. I don't remember him in the room with us. But I remember trying to get out to go to the bathroom and the, we were locked in. Like mm. they did not want us. And so at one point I hear my momo saying, you cannot come down here. Like he was going to come down there and do something about it. Mm. And um, and so we got scuttled out the window. <laughs> Out the, it was like a split ranch, 1970s special. It was brand mm-hmm. new. Yeah. And so we got scuttled out the window to my grandmother's house down the street. And uh, that was that. It was really the last time I saw him until my cousin had uh, had his death experience, I don't know, a decade later. So that that's the kind of experience that led to this legend of me in that circle because I did not understand why anything was strange about me. I'm living my life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, then there's the countless stories of how am I getting out of the crib? How am I getting out of my bassinet? How I'm, I was always just popping up around my momo. And then, you know, at a very early age at three, I was, they divorced and there's a whole story there. I wrote an actual short, um, chat book on it called when she comes home and then i um i fictionalized the ending because everyone dies so it's a it's a seven layer deep story mm-hmm. but at this time at three is when the deep trauma really set in and uh everything went bad and that's when i started to have expressing psychic abilities at, i guess at an unusual rate which led to my book my the first my memory of the first bilocation. I remember I had been doing that all along, getting out of my crib Mm -hmm. and out of my bassinet and stuff. My mom was setting me up, trying to figure out like watching, trying to see how I was doing it. And it would always be glitchy for her. Mm -hmm. And she had a whole bunch of stories that she wrote down about it and that we talked about because it became kind of a interesting niche story, right? Mm -hmm. Stories. And this is what I want to point out as important when you're doing the work yourself and you're looking back at your stories, you're looking back at memory. Memory is very fallible and Mm -hmm. memory is easy to manipulate. Mm -hmm. And so with memory, we need to always think about how is it possible to get back into that space of a story you have. And that's, that's the focus of a lot of my work, but what I'm saying here is that if you are a person that is adept in certain skills, you can seed in a memory real easily with the uh, the young or the very naive types. Mm-hmm. You can seed them in so easily. And we see this with con artists and like the mystery method and uh, different linguistics and all this. This is, this is actually a skill set. And all of these skill sets have patents and have been used for a long time. So when I was tracing back some of this stuff, I wanted to look closer and understand some of this. I realized that my mother had seeded 
memories for me that the story in the memory is so strange that I would remember it and mm-hmm. come back to it, but there was no trauma in the one she seated. Yeah. So, but, but under the story, there was something weird. And so those are the ones I've been investigating now. The ones that I remember very clearly that didn't have an adult telling me what happened, those I tend to think right now are still pretty legit as far as solid memories. It's only when I had an adult or a therapist tell me what the memory is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That those are the ones to question. Oh man, you just nailed me. You just got it right there. That was that was the laser pointer. Uh, I I used to say to my mother as I was developing and, and growing up, you know, you tell me these these three specific stories of my childhood and you repeat them over and over and over as though those are the story that that's my childhood. But mm-hmm. all you have to do is observe my behavior to see what my childhood really was. Mm-hmm. And I think yes. that, that what you're saying is so powerful because that's a form of mind control that your handlers or your parents uh, do in order to embed these ideas to to kind of truncate your childhood so you maybe ignore all of these other things that happened. Uh, but for me, the most powerful moments in, in my memory usually come when I'm not trying to remember something. So if I'm exercising or I'm walking or I smell a smell, I think it, this goes back to our neurology that these places exist in your brain. And this is what the a lot of neurobiologists are trying to identify is these parts of the brain where memory exists that they still can't control. So it's when we are doing other things that these things bubble to the surface. It's when you really, really try to remember something that it it kind of is in the ether and it slips away. But if you just let go and you just kind of allow your mind to be in its totality, that's when a, a flood memory that can be for me, it's like I'm experiencing it again. So I can see, smell, taste, touch, everything it's it's like a visceral experience that's not just um kind of in my mind's eye it's actually like i'm standing there in that moment yes so i can absolutely relate to that what i mean by what my focus is on going back in is i've developed a protocol mm. And I have developed a way in which to communicate to my unconscious self, to the blackness within. I love it. And um, it is working. But I I mean, I'm only just doing this, Mm. you know, in the last several years. I mean, I'm only just doing this. And so it's not like I had was able to do this all along. This Mm -hmm. was something that came about. So those the the. The flood, the gateway of a memory of even just being in a contorted position, Mm -hmm. say exercising and something comes forward. This is that's 
that's golden in a way, no matter how painful it is, that's actually gold because you've struck a vein and, and then you're able to know that there's something there and that that something there might actually be tied into say a core complex. And as Jung said, you always have your complex. Mm -hmm. They go into remission. You don't get rid of a complex. They go into remission until they're reactivated like a grand T square in your astrological chart. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, you know, it's hubris to think that that we are ever cleared of all this. And it's funny to me how many people really will come from that stance. And I'm not here to judge them. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not. I just look and go, wow, that's, you know, really impressive because <laughs> every once in a while I find something that will touch a soft spot a complex. So for me, one of them's abandonment. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the mother story is very big with me. But this, the process, the protocol I'm working on now is very specific. And I use, I record my own voice and I do what are some deep psychological sessions for myself to get into a state of self-hypnosis, if you will. And I take myself through the process and I use certain frequencies to get there. So colloquially, I use the God frequency and I also like working with, uh, you know, I like working with different ones that are healing, but high and intense. Mm -hmm. So I take myself down and I bring myself up through the experience. It's my own voice. I recognize it. It is uh, like in an, a, a, a proper uh, endocrine system or bodily system. It's not a foreign voice. I know I'm safe with myself, etc. I know that the voice carrying me into the experience has my best interest and uh, that's just where I am. I'm at a place where I don't really, truly trust anyone to take me on those journeys mm-hmm. because those journeys have been used against me. Mm-hmm. And so why would I do that when I can do this for myself? I know these techniques. I know how to use my voice. Mm-hmm. I know how to use frequency music and beats. I know how to get into a relaxed state of being, I have all the tools I need. And this is one of the things I promote for people in the outer world doing this. We can do this ourselves. You don't need to go to a gatekeeper to have these experiences. And this is one of the problems in the world I have with all of this in general are that the gurus and the masters, mm-hmm. it's a big deal. You know, call me punk rock. But I really feel that that we can heal ourselves. And I mean that. And I am walking that walk with myself. Do I encounter danger zones? Absolutely. And throughout my own recorded uh, sessions I do for myself, I'm constantly saying, I am in charge. I have the ability. I'll do it more like this. You are in charge. You have the ability to wake up at any time. You are in charge, basically going like that. And I do, I also do these, um, I offer these in uh, my speakeasy for certain people as well with that caveat because the stuff I had tried outside of a live therapist that were just canned, 
canned things mm-hmm. out there, including the gateway process, which I'm not a fan of, mm-hmm. of Monroe's. I think that that's, uh, I can't wait till I, well, I know this. I can't wait till that blows out of the water. Uh, and it will, the nefariousness going on over there. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, it, it's going to take time and it is the receipts are coming in slowly, finally, thank God, but it, it's going to take time. It involves a lot of big money. But what I'm saying here is that in the, in the stuff I do that I give to my friends, because it's not something you can come to me and ask me to do for you. It's only personal level um, is that constant. You can get out of this. You are in charge, etc. You know, I, I sit down and I do it properly. But that in and of itself is a key thing. And it needs to be in more of these canned um, experiences that I've had. Now, I they put them in, they put them in, but they change the frequency. And there's still like you're still lingering or um, I guess grasping towards that that gatekeeper Mm -hmm. that's taking you down. And this might sing to a lot of my experiences doing work with, um, I guess a lot of new age stuff. I grew up with that kind of new agey stuff. Mm -hmm. I was blessed to not be indoctrinated into any real religion ever. And um, I was able to freeform. And so my mother was kind of new agey, And so that stuff was around. It was what I gravitated to. I've got that particular Pluto placement. My generation has that Pluto placement. Mm -hmm. You know, that stuff just seemed obvious that the occulted stuff, the Mm -hmm. the darker Adam's family. And so that's what I'm saying here. Ultimately, Hunter, we can do this for ourselves and we should do this for ourselves. And who better to console you? but yourself. And it's easy. We have all these tools now in this modern era to do this. You don't need another person. Maybe to talk to, maybe to run things by and say, gosh, you know, I just stumbled upon this and and to get validation and all that. But to do your own work, to do the great work, it's you, baby. Yeah. I think that's what it ultimately boils down to in, in, on, in many layers of existence. I think we've grown accustomed to farming out our thinking, our self-care, our self-governance. All of these things gradually have fallen to, you know, become a part of the service industry or part of a government or a part of a medical system. It's like things that we used to you know, old wives remedies and stuff like yes. that. We used to be able to do all of that ourselves and we still can. Uh, yes. We've just <laughs> lost that in the shuffle of the madness of, of contemporary life. I totally agree with you. Punk We're rock. told from day one that this professional does this and yeah. that mm-hmm. professional does this. You should go see this person and that person. And so I also want to chime in here. There are amazing people that actually mean well, that are doing great work in the world, and we should support them. And and sometimes if you are in the terrible trenches and you've done no work mm-hmm. on your own, then this is when you find those people that are actually out there to help. 
Yeah. They do exist, of but course. a lot of times they're not in this bigger system that is taking over everything. And uh, it, it could be as, as simple as going to a grandmother that really, truly loves you. And you know that or going to a well-known past amongst people, you know, uh, say therapist that, that everyone says is you know, you, you get the real receipts from people instead of the online Yelp review. Right. Well, (laughs) uh, and, 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 and maybe the service that they should be providing is to get you to a place where you can do it yourself. Like a naturopath. They want, they don't really want you as a, a a lifetime, you know, they want to help solve the problem and educate you in the process. Every good naturopath I've ever had has been that way. Let's get to the core. I don't want to see you, you know, I want to see you, but we, we're, we'll work on different things. Let's yeah. get to the core of this and move forward. Let's get you healthy. Yeah. Well, I think we have a collective amnesia to some degree. And what a person that you go to, a psychotherapist, a, a counselor, a grandmother, sometimes all those people are doing is reminding you of your own brilliance. They're just mm. holding up a mirror and and reflecting you back to yourself. And and sometimes that's what we need. But this idea that we can farm out our brilliance to someone else or th- this lazy idea of the panacea, like someone's going to give me a pill and I'm instantly <laughs> going to be fixed, I think that that's an outmoded perspective. And there's a lot of people who have made billions and billions of dollars on that perspective. But I think what's happened, one of the benefits that's happened over the past three years is that hitting the pause button has given people the opportunity to maybe reconfigure their ideas about what healing is and Mm -hmm. what um, health is. So I feel like we are there, there are dark moments perhaps still ahead on this journey, but I think so much of what has happened has been beneficial to those, uh, people who are doing the work. Yeah. You know, the whole thing here for me, when I look at the scope of a life and this has just been the weirdness I have always looked at time on, I guess, a macro, everything for me has been a macro and including my psychic abilities or macro abilities. I can pick out, I know when big things are going down, I can see them. I can see the particulars, but you're coming to me asking me about grandma. That's not my thing. I just don't do that. And so I just don't do what I don't do. And I'm not really interested in, um, expanding some of that when my comfort zone and my point of excellence is at something else when someone else could step forward and say, I can talk to grandma. Mm -hmm. So understanding who you are, what you are, what is the process, looking at the span of a life, knowing that, you know, a lot of people can't even come to the realization that, and this realization is changing swiftly, I might add, that this is a transient experience Mm -hmm. life. It is the bottom line, transient. Mm -hmm. And our ideas of visage and personality and, uh, the, the the spoils of the material realm are 
part of the process and it's part of what enslaves us as well. And our society over here in the West is very much geared towards functional years for the collective. And what, again, it's not what you can do. It's not what the, what they can do for you. It's what you can do for them. That mm-hmm. mentality all grew up with and that I'm flipping the bird too, because I see what, I see how they're running it. Yeah. And, um, and that means I'm a slave. And so, no, I'm nobody's chattel. Could you maybe tell some people that are listening uh, where they can find you and your fabulous work? Well, I am on YouTubes every other week with my partner, Jerry Cthulhu. We do Nox Mente and the Obelisk. And so if you just type in Nox Mente, you'll find us. We do live shows every other Wednesday. And then I have my own show, which is the Cosmic Salon. And I'm on Patreon, Nish Double I. Uh, I think forward slash niche uh, patreon it's easy to find and it's in the links of my podcast which is literally everywhere it was top five shared in all of spotify's stuff up there with cool. joe rogan shared wow. i just want to say shared, shared. that was the accolade i got so it's it's in like 47 countries and so you can find me the cosmic salon Fantastic. and then also of course i'm doing other stuff with other people so just keep a lookout yeah, we'll have all the links in the episode notes for sure. It will we'll make it easy for people to find you. <laughs> well, the Nish, right people find me. Yes, yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're funneling through the filter of us. So hopefully that means something positive. <laughs> yes, I imagine with the level of guests you have that well, it's a good thing. <laughs> shucks. And we're gonna be on your show here in a couple of weeks too. So yes, you're on wait. the you'll be on the obelisk, but you're both oh, gonna be on the yeah. cosmic salon when we schedule that. Yes, oh, absolutely. Heck yes. We'd love absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> love it. Cool. Well, Nish, wonderful meeting you. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, have a good rest of your evening. And I will let you know when this goes live. Yes. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. It's been an honor just how and do pleasure. I, and also, like, how does one get out of Streamlab land? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a, there's a little bar on the bottom and the, the right little circle oh, with the red studio yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> the easy one the one on the right that's red yes, exactly. <laughs> All right. have a wonderful evening y'all All right. you too Thank Nish. You. farewell hello county so just as fucking incredible as i i knew that it would be yes Nish yes is a wise old soul and a kind one at that Yes. <laughs> I'm I'm a little fried, a little toasty right now. I've had two back-to-back interviews that were both extremely intense and thought-provoking and interesting and I really look forward to sharing both of them with you guys. I can't wait for you to see and hear the Danny Katz episode that I just did. And this niche episode is Nish. 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 Yeah. yeah. That's the one we're here to talk about yeah. right now. You throw yeah. in your plugs and jeez. <laughs> I, I know. Exactly. Had exactly. 
Um, I've just pulled a Bart Sabrell. <laughs> That's S-I-B-R-E-L-E-L, no E there. We love you, Bart. We do. Um, you're a plugger, though. Yeah, you're a plugger, and we're pluggers. We're plugging, plugging away. We're here to actually uh, to recount the incredible conversation. My God, she's so... She's again. We've had we have so many incredible guests and so many guests who, as they're speaking, I just get this tsunami of memories and thoughts and just constant waves of information pouring in from my own life as they're talking because they're saying things that trigger memory and she definitely had that effect on me and. And, uh, you know, when people are talking about projects and being involved in projects, I start to go through my own chronology and, and try to, you know, tease out what happened here and what was this about. And, you know, so she really is just a force of nature and, and such a kind soul. And it would be very easy to have experienced the things that she has experienced and really kind of have a hardened heart yeah. and be be have a lot of armor on yes, and exactly. she doesn't she's so forthcoming and generous with her experiences and i really really enjoyed her again this is we we just are having this consistent group of women in particular that i feel this sisterhood with and this bond with Nish and Emily Moyer and Laura Wilson and Danny, just, the, you know, it's like all this tide of women that have come into my life via you and, and our life via just this beautiful enmeshment and an organic thing that's happened. And I just feel like it's timely. True. And you have always had a hard time finding a circle of women to be close with, right? You know, I was talking, just to plug my Danny Katz episode again. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was talking to Danny about that. I've always been a man's woman. I've always had more male friends than female friends. I have one best friend that's been my best friend since I was 12 years old. Uh, she is my twin soul, you know, my doppelganger. I, I feel very connected and close to her, even though we're thousands of miles apart. We still have a psychic communication that's happening daily. And so I always felt like, well, I have my friend. I don't need a lot of friends. I've always had a lot of female acquaintances and women that I admire and that I love, but... I, women, we have complicated relationships. We can tend to. And I spoke to Danny about that today. And I feel like Nish and I kind of touched on that as well, that sometimes it's hard for women to show up for each other. And when you get around this kind of alpha energy of, of the feminine, it's easy for that to happen, for women to show up for each other, because they're not in competition. And I didn't feel like I was in competition with Nish for um, airtime or space. I feel like she has her own, she holds her own very beautifully, and yet leaves room 
for others in her reality. Yeah, it's been the opposite for me. I've always felt more comfortable around women um, because men have their own baggage. They tend to, at least, at least the ones that I grew up with, um, mm-hmm. tend to be stoic into sports, talk about things that have nothing to do with the internal world. Yeah. So I was very internal as I was growing up. I still am. But uh, as a boy, that didn't really, I, I, I tended to have maybe one close friend every two years. And yeah. then we would sort of grow apart. And then I'd have another friend for a couple of years. And then finally, it wasn't until probably ninth grade, I fell into a group of friends. Mm -hmm. And that was good because we were all outcasts and none of them were into the typical sort of boy stuff that I always found sort of boring and one-dimensional. So I agree. I I mean, I agree in the sense that I have the same dynamic only with the opposite gender. Um, But I am, it's been wonderful to see you uh, connect with these women. And I know that there is a nourishment there that you can get uh, that you can't get from me. I mean, simple as that. Uh, I don't share the same sort of um, dynamic or experience as uh, you guys do. So, or you women do, I should say. Um, and so that's, it's been fantastic and they're incredible women. Um, I'm so glad that uh, we had the conversation with Nish today. And I, I see that being the first of many, uh, because she's a hard hitter. She's uh, a warrior, a very uh, strong person, and she has come out of her uh, life experience with not cynicism or paranoia, which a lot of people would have, but as you said, an open heart and still a curiosity. I don't. I think I assume that she's probably around our same age. Yeah, I definitely felt like she is a contemporary, you know, and another woman that I just thought of who just popped in my head that I'm, I have this huge connection with, and it was just immediate, it's just this magnetic connection is JJ, and Mm -hmm. I feel so lucky that this has kind of happened all at once, where all these women have kind of come to the, the tribal meeting (laughs) and they're all connected with each other first they're all connected with each other and they've all embraced me and they've all let me into their realm and their world in such a beautiful and gracious and great graceful way that i really appreciate that because again it's easy when you have been in in these realities and and you have dealt with the things that a lot of us have dealt with it's easy to have armor and have your guard up and not be trusting and be skeptical of people because there are people who have alternative agendas and and you know ulterior motives and so I think that's why I kind of keep people at an arm's distance and I, I kind of allow things to unfold in whatever way they're going to unfold. But I don't feel that kind of skepticism with any of these women. I feel very safe to share my experiences and to hear their experiences. And again, there's no competition for airwaves. Everyone is very much 
holding their own space and and capable of hearing your story. And I think that's such an important thing that that we are affording each other is the opportunity to share these experiences and commiserate. You know, there's things that that uh, Nish said that really moved me because they were so similar in my childhood. And, and again, it's like this is deep dive stuff that you don't really, if you're at the gym and you see someone in a yoga class, you don't just go, hey, <laughs> were you part of a program? Like that doesn't, that's not how those relationships are formed. So to have someone sharing you know, this really deep trauma, which always has some degree of grief connected to it. And to have them be able to share those experiences and, and feel that they are embodying that, that they are embodying their truth. And it, there's none of it that, that makes me skeptical. Like, Oh, is this real? Is this not real? where we've had people on the show before where I'm a little bit skeptical of what they're saying because it doesn't resonate with me. But when she's speaking and she's speaking of her abilities, I believe her ability. I believe that she has experienced these things that she's experienced. And I am just utterly fascinated and I would say totally in admira admiration for her. Yeah, I suspected that you two might have some overlap, um, and you did. And uh, you hit it off, and that's great. I think we all hit it off. So, um, yeah, I look forward to having all of those women on uh, more than once, and we should get JJ on here too. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah I I like that uh, that... Nish really embodies this this uh, punk rock ethos and this this kind of an old school in many regards perspective mm -hmm. because I feel that you and I have that too and yeah. so we are we are approaching things like we're old schoolers we we have a a you know, a long game view of a lot of the things that we're discussing. And what's interesting is we didn't really even touch upon uh, the jab or the COVID narrative too much, which is so refreshing to kind of step away from that. But we did touch on kind of the predatorial nature of the system and things that are happening in there. And I think that that stuff, again, I think these things are all enmeshed and integrated and interrelated. And it was so interesting because I had mentioned before on other podcasts, we talked before about 23andMe and DNA raking and actually looking for someone that they're, they're looking for DNA lines. So to have her uh, corroborate that it's something it's again it's like doing you're doing like stream of consciousness writing you know psychic channeling and you pick up on something and someone else goes yes that's right that's it it just kind of reinforces my my connection with this vessel yeah and 
those episodes, and I'm sure this one too, will garner a lot of positive reaction and start up some conversations because of it. Because um, I think they're needed. It's needed to, these things are needed to be talked about. But about our generation, I think uh, we're at a point now where we have had enough experiences because our world wasn't as nerfed as uh, this generation and uh, the generations around this generation mm-hmm. seem to be, that we probably engaged in some sort of <laughs> dangerous slash risky slash unsafe behavior that we absolutely survived and mm-hmm. um, and learned from and have now been able to garner some wisdom from that uh, and apply it to our lives. And I would not have it any other way as messed up as I have been in my life, I had to stumble around in the dark for a long time to get to where I'm at now. And I'm very happy with where I'm at right now. So I think uh, she definitely brought that energy too. And I relate to that dynamic completely. Um, Yeah. And I have to remember, you know, when anytime that I have any concerns for our kids and, and them, them exploring different avenues and you know different perspectives of life I have to remember uh, my own rearing and my own childhood and my mother performing seances with us when we were kids and you know us hanging out in graveyards and taking pictures and you know all of these things that I did these dances with magic that I had as an early early child and then throughout my um, adolescence and growing up, like how I continued these practices and I did different things that now, you know, we might look upon and be like, oh, that's weird, you know, to go to scary places at night or go to cemeteries or what or whatever, you know. So I think I have to remember that and, and just say, okay, this is part of development is that you – you have these dances and you have these experiences and it doesn't mean that you are embodying some dark force or even necessarily leaving yourself open to some dark force. You may be dancing around things, but it doesn't mean that you are getting wholly absorbed by them. I think we have it's like a baby. A baby has a shell of protection around it. Then when it falls, it's not going to hit that corner of the table because it's almost like it's in a little bubble. Yeah. It's important to, to rub your elbows against things and scuff your knees and face adversity and come through it. I mean, that's the only way that you can test your metal and see what you're made of. And I'm not saying go out and seek it necessarily uh, or do things that are foolish, obviously foolish, and and lethally dangerous um but you know it's it's important to get outside of your comfort zone i think that's the only way that we learn things and expand and and realize there's a a big wide world out there that is um a lot different than what we experience in our tiny little heads sometimes yeah and go to the edge of it yeah and know that you can come back i think I think now what I see a lot generationally is, you know, this degree of depression or upset 
without really earning it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know what well, I mean? It just is, I see it just being born of confusion. Like it's, yeah. there's too many distractions. Yeah. Um, you've got to really just focus on what's right in front of you yeah. and the real, put it in perspective. Yeah. And it's easy to be offended. For sure. It's very easy to be offended by what someone else says and take what other people say out of context and then run with that. I would imagine. I, it seems on the outside that that seems to be playing out. I don't engage in that behavior, yeah. but um, it seems like people must get addicted to that feeling because there's some, it goes hand in hand with some sort of self-righteousness, like yeah. superiority. Yeah. yeah, it's the, again, it's the makes me feel culture that everyone is responsible for your state. And so your state is at the whim of uh, likes or... Um, social interaction that you're getting on social media. And I feel like that has a very short shelf life if that's where you are determining your value. And I think people will get over that. I think there's there's a part of our human experience that maybe plays with that world a little bit And then you get out into the quote-unquote real world face-to-face, and you have good exchanges and good interactions. And I think that just reinforces, oh, this is what's real, the things I can touch, the things that I'm I'm actually physically confronted with. And Mm -hmm. those things are important. Yeah. As I have said time and time again, and you have too, media is, um, especially social media, can easily, especially for people who don't have, again, a lot of perspective and a lot of life experience, can take, can substitute real life experiences and interactions. And that's dangerous territory because it's very subjective. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think people get into the loop of where they think the world should um, center itself around their comfort and around their uh, feeling good about themselves. And, um, that's kind of where the leftist um, narrative has kind of tumbled down into totalitarianism, um, which is weird to see play out in my lifetime. I, I, I was yeah. to see your side back when I thought that there were sides or I thought sides were important um, kind of spiral off into this kind of their flashlight battery stopped working and they just stumbled off into an alcove in the labyrinth. And they totally fucking lost their way. Totally lost their way. Um, not saying they can't gain their way back. Uh, I think that it will happen. I'm really, I, I'm not concerned about whether it will happen or not. I just know that the only constant is change. So it's got to swing back in some way yeah. or another. But yeah. I'm, I'm not there to, to lead them out. Well, it's none of my beeswax. (laughs) That's how I look at it. It's not, that's not my hill to die on. That's not my fight. And I feel like it's both sides. It's easy to say the, the left, but I would say, you know, any kind of fundamentalist um, architecture you're dealing with on either side is rife and problematic and full of danger. So I I don't think that either one of those realities is real. (laughs) I don't either, but it seems to be like the left seems to be the squeakiest fucking wheel right now. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
And I'm sure it will shift as we've seen it shift in our yeah. lives. So, yeah. and it's just, that's just the, the pendulum is going to keep swinging back and forth while we still believe that there are different, like there is, if while we're stuck in duality, I guess would be an yeah. easy, easy exactly. way to put it. So, exactly. Okay. Do you thank think you. we should let these thank kind you. people go? Hey. <laughs> Uh, thank you so much for listening. Hopefully you enjoyed this episode as much as we enjoyed engaging in it and bringing mm-hmm. it to you. Um, yeah. Uh, we ask you uh, if you've garnered something positive from this to pass it on, like it, give good reviews, share it, subscribe, hit, hit all the right buttons um, because it helps to get this out to people that may need to hear it. So. Uh, let's see if you have guest suggestions or casserole recipes or anything else. Is that getting old? Should we come up with a new one? How about, um, Sasquatch, uh, bathing recipes. (laughs) You can contact us at the melt podcast at protonmail.com or... Hunter-Muse at ProtonMail.com. Thank you so much for listening. We love you all. Um, We do. We do love you. Make the world a great place by making yourself a great person. Do it. Do it now. Until next time. (laughs) Great stuff. Great stuff coming your way. Ta-da! To hear the full-length version of this episode... Get access to exclusive and early episodes and participate in our monthly Zoom meetups for as little as $3 per month. Just click the Patreon link in the episode notes or visit patreon.com slash themeltpodcast. Contributing financially will help to make this podcast my full-time gig that I can devote more time to and allow me to create more content. Other ways of contributing would be giving us a favorable review or rating wherever you get your podcasts, subscribing to us on YouTube, spreading the word wherever you and your tribe congregate, or just by sending us your positive thoughts and intentions. In a quantumly intertwined and holographic multiverse, these also go a long way. Thank you.